with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. And for those of you who remain here and on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> we've, we've been in a rather technical section of Hebrews. He's building for something. We've been talking about Melchizedek, and now he's going to talk about covenants. Um, and it's worth diving into uh, that we might have a better understanding of who our God is and what it is that he's done. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll be looking at the whole chapter. This is God's word. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, old, as, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand this, your word, what it means for us, and what it tells us about you, Lord, that, that we might know the true power of that promise that you will be our God and we shall be your people. Make this so in the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. So we do have a tendency in our culture to argue over what's better, the old or the new. 
There are these remakes of movies. And people will argue to no end, like, which one's better? The old 1925 version or the 1960 version or the 2016 version? We, I mean, some of you will walk into a room with a new haircut and you just put us all on the spot. We have to decide, do we like the new one or do we prefer the old? We, we pursue these experiences and some of us love to like take trips or go to places that, that evoke in us nostalgia because we look back to those great days. Others of us are like, forget that. I want to experience something new. We go to new places and we, we find new people and new experiences. And I mean, I'm dating myself here, but the whole new Coke, classic Coke thing. It's just like we just love to argue which is better, the new or the old. And the store puts up the sign under new management and that might make you glad. Or you might be the sort of person that longs for the good old days. There's, there's just a lot to argue about in this. And here we are in a passage of Scripture that's making a, a whole lot of the new covenant versus the old covenant. And it's not because the author of this book has some great uh, love of tedium, it's because the people that he's writing to, and, and as we've said before, this is likely even a sermon that was written down, the people that he may even have spoken to at first, have, have had this tendency to be the sort of people that look back to the old and think it's better. Maybe because it was more comfortable, maybe because it seemed more glorious, maybe because the news seemed weird or, 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 or intangible, but they were looking back to the old covenant the priesthood, the laws, the ceremonies, the angels, all of these things, and thinking, wouldn't it be better if we kept up with that? The author of Hebrews is going to great pains to say, nothing could be worse for your eternal soul than to look back when we have something so glorious as the new covenant, it is superior in every way. And so what we're going to do this morning is uh, compare and contrast the old covenant and the new. We're going to look at how, how are they similar and how are they different. And what we're going to learn is this, this, we'll learn a lot hopefully, but this central principle is going to be thread all throughout. We will discover that God, who's revealed himself in these covenants, has always revealed himself to be a saving God. God has always revealed himself to be a saving God. So let's dive in. Let's compare these two covenants. And what we're going to find when we do that is that we're going to find that both covenants reveal this God who saves. There's so much about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that is connected, that is similar. I mean, they have the same structure. They are covenants, after all. Well, what is a covenant? This is old language. We don't use this very much unless we're talking and complaining about the neighborhood covenants that force us to put up a certain kind of mailbox. These covenants are similar, but deeper. The, the biblical covenants 
were solemn promises between parties. Often uh, attested to with the, the sacrifice of blood. And these covenants contained promises that each party would fulfill and the blessings that would come to those and, and consequences that would uh, come about if those promises weren't fulfilled. But at the heart of a covenant was a relationship between two people that wanted to come together for good. Whether a king and his people or neighbors, uh, a covenant is this solemn promise between parties, a relationship that, that is, goes deeper and has more significance and more commitment than just a casual acquaintance. And so this old covenant isn't the Old Testament, because the Old Testament contains many connected but distinct covenants. The covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David. There are a whole bunch in there. But the author here, when he speaks of the old covenant, he's borrowing language from Jeremiah, who's looking back to the, the Mosaic covenant specifically when the Lord brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with them and gave them the law and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the system of worship and obedience that he called his people to. And so when we read Old Covenant in the book of Hebrews, it's thinking specifically and primarily about the Mosaic Covenant. And the New Covenant isn't just the New Testament. It's new because it brings something different than the Old Covenant, which we'll talk about later. Not because it's necessarily newer in time, because if you read the Old Testament, you find... That the new covenant is mentioned in there all over the place. Here, the author is quoting the prophet Jeremiah, talking about this new covenant that the Lord is going to bring about. You can make an argument that Genesis 3.16 promises this new covenant, something better, but still rooted in this covenant structure, this relationship between God and man. It's the same structure. It's the same God. It's not two different gods, the, the, the angry God of the Old Testament, if you will, and the, the nice, polite God of the New Testament. There's no such distinction. It's the same God from beginning to end. We read here in verse 5 that uh, Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, where the people of Israel would worship the Lord, he was instructed by God with all these same instructions. The same God that spoke through Jeremiah. The same God that is revealing his word through the author of Hebrews. It's the same God from beginning to end in the old covenant and the new. And this God is making the same promises. Specifically, this one promise that you read again and again and again. It's throughout the Bible. Do a, a search and, and look up all of the times this phrase or something like it is mentioned in the Old Testament, from the beginning all the way to the end in Revelation. This promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. This God who desires relationship with people. This God who made mankind in his own image and didn't just set them about to go about their days and their hours and their years on their own, 
with no connection to the one who made them, but this God who enters into covenant, who enters into relationship with them to be their God, that they might be marked out as his own people. But how is this possible? If you're anything like me, you've got some things that you might not want God to call attention to. Things from your past. Things from this morning. Things from right this second that you're trying to shove out of your mind. And so, we see both in this old covenant and the new covenant, not just the same structure, the same God, the same promise, but we see the same holiness. Our God is righteous and holy and perfect. Nothing that is full of darkness or wickedness or sin can dwell comfortably in his presence. And so, he's ordained and established and appointed a priesthood to guide people in how they might relate to this God rightly. In the old covenant, it was the Levitical priesthood. In the new covenant, it's through the the order of the priesthood uh, through the order of Melchizedek, through the great high priest, our Lord Jesus, but a priesthood nonetheless to help us connect rightly with God, to gain access to him and to his holy presence in a way that will not cause us to immediately die. We see that both covenants founded on the same word, the same law. It's not that the old covenant is just worried about the Mosaic law and the new covenant is is something new and different and we don't have to worry about that Old Testament stuff anymore. The, The author here, as he's dealing with people who are tempted to go back to all the old ways, uses the very Old Testament scriptures that they've been looking to to remind them The new covenant is founded on that that same word, that same unshakable word of God. And we see that these covenants deal with the same sort of people, namely sinners like you and me. And they show these sinners that the That the way to have a relationship with God, the way to to be a, a, a living part of these covenants that open the way for us to know the one who made us, the way for us to to sense the, the fullness of that promise that he will be our God, that we will be his people, to enter into his presence rightly, that way requires the forgiveness of sins. It requires our unrighteousness to be dealt with. It requires atonement. It requires sacrifice. Which is why the priests weren't just there to teach, but they were appointed, as it tells us in verse 3, to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins and the sins of the people. And this idea makes our modern minds uncomfortable, perhaps. Because we think, like, the idea of sacrifice, like, why should, why should blood sacrifice have anything to do with forgiveness? Just forgive. 
It seems appalling to have a religion so tainted with blood. Maybe this is your way of thinking. You wouldn't be alone. The thing is, forgiveness always requires sacrifice. I mean, if, if I were to go outside and intentionally or unintentionally put a big scratch in your nice paint job on your car, how are we going to be restored and reconciled? Now, some of you, you don't care. You have enough scratches on your car. Maybe you can't see it. But some of you, you might be put out with me. Either, no matter how much I apologize, I'm going to pay for you to get it fixed. Or you're going to pay to get it fixed. Somebody pays the price to have that damage restored. And what these covenants are showing us is that the, the, the damage in the relationship between us and God is so great. Only the most ultimate of sacrifice could possibly bridge the gap. Both covenants teach these things. But the old covenant has a unique problem. You see it in verses 7 and 8. There is nothing in the old covenant, not one single thing, not in any of the laws, not in any of the rituals, not in any of the sacrifices, not in any of the orders of priests. There is not one single thing in the Old Covenant that has the power to actually save you. The Old Covenant says, he who keeps these laws will live by them. And time and time and time and time and time again, people in Israel, people in America, people here, people like you and me find they can't keep God's standard of holiness. Well, we have all these sacrifices. We can just make it right. Who's got a sheep? And yet we read again and again and again, if the blood of bulls and goats could actually take away sin, why do we keep having to offer them over and over and over? I'm starting to hear talk about uh, RUF's summer conference. It's coming up. doesn't feel like it, but it's coming up. Warmer days are here. You should all go if you're a college student. Highly recommend it. Back in the day when I went, they started this this uh, sandcastle building contest. I don't know if they still do it, but uh, all the schools would get together and each school would build their own big sandcastle and we had a big competition to see who could win. And I mean, there were some incredible, incredible things. Football stadiums built out of sand, actual castles properly with all the ramparts and towers and all the details, stonework even, and printed on the sides. <laughs> People tried to do like the Mount Rushmore of RUF and like just like carving faces into sand. It's incredible the sorts of things you could see. And some of these things look almost so lifelike. You just want like, wow. I could jump on that thing and it won't fall down. And yet we all came out the next morning and not a single one stood because it didn't have the power to stand against the waves. 
The old covenant was never designed to have the power to save. It was given as a teacher to point to something better. And so when we contrast these two covenants, what we find is that only the new covenant can actually accomplish the salvation that God promises. It is, that is why it's new. It's superior in the fact that it actually can do what it says it will do. You see this all throughout this passage. In verse 10, uh, verse 2, I'm sorry, we see that, that the, the new covenant gives us better access to God. The old covenant, you had uh, the Levitical priests going into the tabernacle or later the temple, and they could go into the holy place. And once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies in this inner room where the earthly throne of God was said to dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. But in the new covenant, we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now in his presence, in the true tent, not in a, 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 an earthly tent that is a replica, but in the actual place where God dwells, where his throne is, that is where our Lord Jesus Christ is. And he is ministering there in that place for us forever. We have better access to our God in the new covenant. There is a, a better fulfillment of the promises of God. Not in shadows, as we see in verse 5. In the old covenant, they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. God gave, all, if you go back and read the book of Exodus, God and Leviticus, if you can make it through them both, you will find that God is very, very meticulous in the detail that he gives. This is how you should build the tabernacle. This is the material you should use. These are the designs you should sew into it. This is the color. This is all of the stuff. This is where this piece of furniture should go. This is where this piece of furniture should go. This is how you should build it. This is how you should carry it. Meticulous. Because he is giving Moses a copy of heavenly things. That's what a temple is. It is a place where heaven and earth meet. But these things were just copies. They were just shadows. They weren't the actual heavenly realities. But in Christ, we have the heavenly realities. For God himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And when we read that passage in John where it says Jesus dwelt among us, the word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. That is the true tabernacle. That's why Jesus could look at the people of his day and say, tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Because he didn't, wasn't talking about the earthly temple. He was talking about himself. He was and is the heavenly realities that have come down. You have an image in your bulletin. It's put it here on the screen. This is, this is the diagram of everything that the book of Hebrews is, is trying to teach us. And trying to teach the original audience about why the old things, as great and as wondrous as they are, are not worth going back to. Because they are just shadows. 
They are real. They are true. They teach us something powerful about who God is and what he's like and what he asks of us and what he thinks about us and what he's going to do for us. But they are copies. They are shadows. They have no weight. They point ahead to the reality, to our Lord Jesus, who is the fulfillment, who is the reality in everything. We have in the new covenant a better fulfillment. We have a a better sacrifice. It's interesting in verse 3 that he remarks that every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. They had to do it every year. They'd go on the day of atonement into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice and send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. But then it says, "But, but this other high priest, Jesus, he also has to have something. And it's no accident that one is plural and one is singular. Because the author has been making the case that in the the sacrifice of himself on the cross, the Lord Jesus offered a sacrifice that can take away sin. Because it wasn't just an example. He bore in his body the weight of the consequences of the guilt of our sin. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose again to newness of life to confirm that 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 sacrifice never has to be offered again because he did it once and it's done. And so we have in the new covenant a better law A better word, not a law that stands over us, that gives us nothing but condemnation, that does nothing but point out how we have fallen short of the glory of God, how we have offended his holiness, how we have been unrighteous and wicked. Because that sacrifice of atonement brings forgiveness of sin that the Lord will remember no more. And instead, he takes his law and he writes it on our minds and he writes it on our hearts that we might more and more and more live out what God has called us to do and to be, fulfilling the law as we learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Not living under condemnation, but living out of gratitude. And so this new covenant which gives us such better access, better fulfillment, a better sacrifice, a better law, opens the way for us to step into a better worship of our living God. For we, we read that that we shall know the Lord. We'll know him rightly. We won't know about him. We won't know of him because of a word from a priest. We won't know things that he has done because of stories that have been told. We shall know him. Because he sends his spirit to dwell among his people. He might make his home in us. We might know his name. Our Lord Jesus. Our God our great high priest, our savior, our king. And so we worship him because we know who he is. He is glorious. That he would 
do such great things for his people. When I was younger, okay, when I was not that much younger, I had an entirely oversized Lego collection that my son has now taken and expanded to even more glorious levels. And I would build and build and build cities and space stations and starships and all kinds of stuff. And I used to imagine to myself when I was 30 or 40 years old, or maybe in my teens, how cool would it be if these things came, came to life, like I could jump into the spaceship and fly off, like all the adventures, like, like all of these, these cities that I've built, like just came to life. If it was, what if it was real? That would be so cool and maybe scary upon reflection, but so awesome, breathtaking. Like you would walk into my room expecting to see some Lego monorail space set and it was real. What the Old Covenant taught, what the Old Covenant foreshadowed, what the Old Covenant pointed to, in the New Covenant, it is all true. It is all real. The promises are all yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ, that our God wants to know his people to dwell with them in joy and in truth and in holiness, that we have access to him, that he would be our God, that we would be his people. So what's the point? Why why do this deep dive into this technical covenant stuff? What does it matter? You might be looking up things to put into a card for a certain day that's coming up. Love poems, maybe. Maybe you're not. Maybe you should get started. I defy you to find a whole lot of sonnets written that extol the virtues of a loved one's shadow. There's not a whole lot to say about it. You look taller sometimes, shorter others. There's no weight to the shadow. The the thing that usually captivates the poet is the reality, the actual beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ, though we do not see him face to face now, is the heavenly reality that our hearts long for. But we are so prone to look elsewhere. The readers here were looking back to the Old Testament thinking, wouldn't it be better if we just had a priesthood? We look for signs and wonders. We look for success to know that God is with us. We look for deeper knowledge so that we can have some confidence that we we understand how all this covenant stuff works. This is old stuff. Move on, pastor. But what the author of Hebrews is trying to drive home to his people and to us and what we have got to go back to daily is that our faith 
This new covenant handed down to us by God himself, it's not principally about doctrine, although we have spent a great deal of time talking about some doctrines. Doctrine's important. It's not principally about commandments, though there are certainly commandments. There is a law that is to be written on our hearts. It's not principally about ritual, though in a way, I suppose it could be said, we will be celebrating a sacrament shortly. All of those things are important, but it's not about those. It's about a person. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, our great high priest who has done everything to clear the way for us to know God rightly and have access to the joy of his presence. And we can get so content to know about Jesus or to feel like we're close to Jesus or to do things for Jesus and miss him who is the glory and radiance of God. What is the point? The old covenant, the new covenant, what the old covenant teaches, what the new covenant accomplishes, it's driving us to the person of Jesus, to rest in his work, to delight in his person, to seek his way, whatever the cost, because it's only in him that we can know God as a saving God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Give us eyes to see our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of his person and work. Help us, O God, to not merely be content to know about him, to not merely be content to do for him, or to feel as if he is near, but to know him and the joy of his presence and the confidence of his salvation and the hope of his promises that cannot be shaken. Give us that faith that we might follow after him until that day comes where our faith turns to sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.